All right. Well, good morning, ladies. Let's uh, open our time in prayer, and we'll jump into our, our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful morning. Thank you for crisp, cool air. Thank you for new seasons, and Lord, particularly a, a time where we get to celebrate uh, a holiday season, as our culture would call it, but we know it's something so much more precious to us, and, and that's the the coming of our Savior to this earth. And so, Lord, we just give thanks and we rejoice in what we have before us in these coming weeks and uh, next couple months. We pray as particularly for this morning as we look at your word that our hearts would be soft and eager to be humbled under your word, Lord, that we would uh, embrace what you have put forth and what you have called good for your glory. Lord, it truly is a privilege to get to live for you and to get to glorify you and serve you in whatever capacity you would allow. And so this morning, I pray that it would be uh, just a sweet time around your truth and uh, that I would be clear and accurate with your word and that it would be helpful for these women as we seek to honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, a couple things. Um, before we jump into it, go ahead and turn to your resources and pull out your laminated sheet. And I want to just point out a couple things real quick. As I was looking over this sheet and we were talking through it, it kept, it kept ringing funny in my ear. And I just want to bring a point of uh, confusion and then hopefully in the coming weeks I'll bring a point of clarity. But... On the first, the Old Testament dates, we believe in a young earth uh, at Gilbert Bible Church. And most scholars believe that the earth then, for a young earth, is about six to 10,000 years old. And there's some range there in light of the genealogies. Most, most of the scholars that take the geolo genealogical accounts just at face value would put the earth at 6,000 years old. Therefore, when you see creation and it says 6,000 BC, that actually is closer to 4,000 BC based off of just taking the genealogies from Genesis and counting up the years, which also means that the flood is something like 1,600 years after that. So you don't have to take notes of this on a laminated sheet. Unfortunately, most of my resources that um, that I would go to to get the specific data regarding this are boxed up in a storage unit right now because I cleaned out my desk at Grace and most of my books are in the storage unit and then the ones that I've been using for study are um, in our house and I haven't been able to make my way over there to to dig those out. But I just wanted to give you a heads up. I'll have some more specific dates coming and we'll probably just relaminate these sheets with that information updated and hand them out in the future. But I just wanted to draw attention to that this morning, as I said, to create confusion, and then I'll bring clarity down the road. But if it, if it seemed funny to you, because the, the idea is if the earth is 6,000 years old, if something happens 6,000 BC and we're 2000 AD, I'm not a math major, but that's 8,000. <laughs> And so that's still within uh, uh, a range of what some hold to for a young earth. But um, even reading the Institute for Creation Research, they have a Beyond the Basics of Creation. I was reading that book this, uh, this week, and they actually spell out, they have a wonderful section that spells out the exact timing of each of the genealogies and take into account like the gestation period from to create a range, like if, if this person was conceived at this point, you know, depending on conception or birth, it can range by, you know, 20 years, not 2000. So anyway, there's some good information in that book, but I'll, um, I'll get that updated in the, in the coming weeks. So, okay. Um, what we're going to do is listen, this is a safe place. This might create points of anxiety. That's okay. It's a safe zone. Uh, what I, I want you to split into groups of two or three and just together walk through this. And Lisa has um, put together essentially a, I don't know, what would you call it? Like a cheat sheet of... Yeah, but I didn't send it out 
because I hadn't gotten back to her, because she actually recorded me saying the wrong dates in that cheat sheet. And I'm like, uh, let me look into that a little bit. So today you're flying blind. You got to just go from memory, okay? And that, except for Lisa. So you might all want to be in Lisa's group. No, it's not a test. Just It's good to work through from memory. Just see where you're at and go, oh, okay, I can, I can remember this part. If you get tripped up, no problem. It's just, just work through it and try to talk through that timeline together. And we'll spend maybe five minutes or so, okay? So go for it. Two or three, groups of two or three.
Okay, about one more minute. All right, we'll, uh, we'll stop there. How was that? Harder than expected, easier than expected, as horrible as you expected, all of the above? Okay, we'll keep working through that. Um, it, it, is, it is, trust me, it will be helpful. If it, if it seems, okay, this is just, we're going through these events. Uh, I'll tell you, when I, when I learned that and then got some of those key dates, it, it really did, that in conjunction with some other just basic details of uh, timeline in the Old Testament was so helpful as I was reading through my Old Testament afterwards, just being able to, to reference what, what happened when, what were the key events in the progression. And even when reading your New Testament, it's helpful when there's references back to the history of Israel and what took place and, and so on. So good job. Keep with it. Don't be discouraged. It's early. We got, we got two years, almost a year and a half still, over a year and a half to work through that. You guys will all be pros. So, All right. Uh, you can put that sheet back in your binder and then make your way to our outline for today which is discipline two, embracing biblical roles, Christ-like service in the home. And before we jump into that, uh, I had a, an opportunity to listen to Tyler's lesson on the attributes of God. And if you weren't here for that two weeks ago, you really need to go back and make sure you listen to that lesson. He did a phenomenal job in just setting the stage. We're gonna have three more lessons over the next year and a half on the attributes of God, where we just dig into further attributes together. Um, and, and I loved the foundation that he set for us just with the importance of knowing God and drawing near to him uh, worshipfully through our knowledge of him, having a knowledge that leads us to, to worship and devotion, and, um, and then how he set forth his names and so on was, was just excellent. He did a great job. So um, that, that knowledge of God is so crucial for the Christian life because we base our lives on worshiping and living for and serving and entrusting ourselves to him and his wisdom. And so when we know God, when we understand his character, it helps humble us. We need to be humbled to submit ourselves to him and to his wisdom. And the world just, our own sinfulness and the world just presses in on us at every opportunity to say that we know better and we know what's right. And that's just not true. God, God knows what's best. He's trustworthy and he's faithful and, and we should be eager to, to worshipfully submit ourselves to him. And so Tyler did a great job and um, thankful for him. It was, it was helpful as, uh, as we were away for that weekend. So this morning we're going to talk about biblical roles and God's design for uh, roles, particularly in the home. 
and we're going to talk about what it means to have Christ-like service in the home. How do we embrace our biblical roles, but not just in a, a manner that's checking a box of doing what we should be doing, but how do we do it in a way that imitates Christ, that glorifies Christ, that magnifies Christ in our embracing uh, what God has before us. And so as we contemplate these biblical roles, it's really important that we understand how did we get here? How did we get to the point to where we are today in regards to man and woman in the home, in the marriage relationship and what that's to look like? And so we're gonna start with foundations for biblical marriage. And that's on the first page of your outline. Is everybody with me on that? Excellent. So at Gilbert Bible Church, the same as Grace Bible Church, we have a biblical conviction on complementarianism within the church home. That's the, that's the big theological term summary for how we believe God sets forth roles and functioning within uh, man and woman relationships, both in the home, but this also extends outside of the home into the church. And the, the main thrust of that belief is that man and woman, and we're gonna talk about this more and kind of map it out just briefly, through scripture, but the belief is that man and women are created equal before God spiritually. Um, not one is more important or less important or more valuable or less valuable than the other. Both men and women are created spiritually equal, and yet they have different roles within their relationship with one another. God has specifically given a set of roles to the man in a marriage relationship and to a woman in, in the marriage relationship. And in God's wisdom, he's set things in this uh, manner. And when a man and a woman are embracing those biblical roles and functioning within their biblical roles, it is uh, productive, God glorifying, honoring to the Lord, and actually demonstrates wonderful things about the nature of God in their relationship. Even the Trinity is expressed, the glorious relationship of differing roles and spiritual equality in the Trinity is expressed in, in um illustrated through a man and a woman's faithfulness in these roles. But we need to understand how we got here. So this is a biblical conviction for Gilbert Bible Church. It's what we hold to and what we believe. Uh, as I said, it, it, it is definitely foundational in the marriage relationship, but it also extends into the church, that there's roles for men and women within the church as well that we're to embrace and function in. So Understanding how we got here. First of all, man and women are created in God's image. We see that from the very beginning in Genesis 1, that man and woman, he created them in the image of God. He created them. And if you go to Genesis 1, you can either listen or you can turn there. But God says in verse 26, then God said, let us, and we see a, a um, expression of the triune God there, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female. And so he just clarifies there, not just mankind, but male and female, he created them. And he's emphasizing the fact there that man and women are both created in God's image. However, man and woman sinned against God and are separated from God by their sin. Uh, not one is more sinful than the other or more condemned. It's not like the woman is the black sheep of humanity because she was deceived um, or that man is the black sheep of humility because he willfully sinned against the Lord and defied his instruction. Both men and women are sinful are ruined by their sin, are separated by God from their sin, are in need of a savior because of their sin. And men and women are men and women are hopeless in and of themselves to be what God desires. We can't make ourselves right. And Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so when we're contemplating the reality that we were created in God's image, there was sinlessness, sin entered the world, and all mankind is now depraved. That's where we're born with a sinful bent against God, rebellion, a sinful disposition against God. We cannot honor God like we went through in the, the new man worksheet, the um, transformation of man worksheet, how we talked about 
the, the depravity of man or the sinfulness of man, the fact that prior to knowing Christ, we're in an unmixed condition of sinfulness against God. Um, we can't get ourselves out of that. We can't be what God desires us to be. And it's no wonder that the world would mar so, so intensely the roles and the image that God desires to have portrayed in manhood and womanhood. And yet, we have hope to honor God because we have hope in Jesus. We can embrace what God has called us to be. Men can be what God has called men to be because of Christ. And women can be what God has called women to be because of Christ. We can have hope to honor God, to glorify God, to, to put on display the riches of God's wisdom in our obedience to Christ. So with those things in mind, let's talk a little bit about God's establishment of the spiritual equality and the role differentiation between men and women. We're going to fly through this quick, okay? This is, this is one of our biblical convictions. I know many of you have uh, been familiarized with this. If you were a member at Grace Bible Church, you would have been introduced to this um, study or this belief in the membership class at a, at a minimum. And uh, if this is new for you and I'm going too fast, feel free to come back and talk to me about it if there's ways that I can be available to help you. Um, but we're going to go through a little bit quicker right now. And also I wanted to say we're going to work through our outline this morning and then we're going to save a little bit of time at the end for just questions to discuss. You can ask questions along the way, but also know at the end of our lesson. We're going to have some time just to open it up for questions. I'd love to hear what's on your mind, if there, especially if there's um, either big picture, well, how does this work, or close, okay, what does it look like in these types of situations? Um, we'll have a little bit of time to, to talk about that together, and then we'll split into our groups. Any questions so far? I'm going to take a breath. I'm fine. Yeah, thanks. I got lots of coffee. I think it's just allergies. My voice is a little scratchy. Okay, uh, understanding God's design for men and women. So this should be page two of your outline. And you see spiritual equality yet role differentiation. We're just gonna breeze through this a little bit. But the main point is that we see this consistently throughout all of scripture, this reality of spiritual equality and role differentiation. We see that, first of all, in the Old Testament, that there's spiritual equality, and we already talked about that, that man and woman were created in the image of God. They're, they're both in God's image, and they are both, men and women, are both equally totaled by sin and its effects and the consequences of sin. We're both under God's condemnation prior to salvation because of our sinfulness. Not one is more sinful or less sinful in regards to their disposition or separation from God. And yet God has specific role differentiation in mind. Turn to Genesis 2. This is really the foundation for biblical manhood and womanhood where we get a glimpse into uh, the first expression of God's untainted design for manhood and womanhood. God has created the world, and he looks at everything upon his creating it, and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then the only thing in all of creation in a sinless state and time that God looks at and says is not good is when he looks upon man and he says in verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the only thing that God references as not good when the world was in a sinless state. And so God made woman, a helper suitable for him. We'll talk a little bit more about a uh, woman's role as a helper from the very beginning. God makes a helper for man suitable for him. And he goes on, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Verse 20 of chapter 2 of Genesis. 
The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, to every beast to the f- of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sinless state, all is good. The woman is created as a helper for man. The man is given the task to work in the field, to to name the animals, to take care of the garden, to tend to the garden. There was work prior to the fall. It wasn't toil. That came after the fall. But there was work. There was responsibility. There was obligations that the man had. And, And he had a specific role before the Lord. And he was better equipped to fulfill that role with the helper that God provided for him in his wife, Eve. And so we see this, we see this role differentiated, uh, differentiation that God created man first, then woman. God had an order in mind. Again, that, that's not an expression of value or importance, but simply an order in which he created them. And this order is linked to their different roles. God instructs and confronts the first human pair through the man. And there was responsibility upon Adam for both of them in regards to his leadership and oversight and, and care for the household. And God designed these roles to be different and yet not the spiritual equality to vary at all equal in spiritual value and importance and the order doesn't diminish the spiritual equality but it actually enhances and promotes the roles that God has given us and if this idea of role differentiation is is difficult um, or intimidating or hard or, or something that you struggle with it's important to remember that even within the triune God we wouldn't say that the father is more important than the son or that the Father and the Son are more important than the Spirit, or that the Spirit somehow is more important than the Son. And yet each member of the triune God has different roles. And so different roles doesn't equate anything to do with importance or value or anything like that, which is what oftentimes our culture would want to communicate, right? If there's different roles, if, there's, if they're not equal in what's expected or what, they, or what we think they can or can't do, that's... That's not ultimately the question of what you can or can't do. It's what's right to do before the Lord. And am I embracing that? Well, where the world would want to challenge that and associate your value with your role as if you must have the same role to be valuable, God says, no, you're both incredibly valuable in the sense of of what he has designed and created you for. And you're called to embrace the role that God has called you to. So we see that in the Old Testament. We also see Jesus promote this same reality, spiritual equality. He dramatically emphasized a a woman's spiritual equality with man. In the midst of a woman-demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jewish culture, Jesus used illustrations and images familiar and useful to women. He interacted with women. He revealed himself as the Messiah to women. He taught women directly. He allowed women to touch him and and he touched women. And after his resurrection, he revealed himself first to women. All of these things would have been considered considered unprecedented in that culture. Jesus really um, uh, went against the culture in his interaction with women in his day and age. And yet he didn't do anything to exalt women to a different role or to have spiritual leadership over men. In, this, in the way that he so effortlessly went against the culture in elevating the, the spiritual consideration of women, he didn't go against what were the norms in regards to the roles of men and women that were to be expressed and, and to be embraced in that time. <coughs> Excuse me, or in any time for that matter. And so Jesus affirms what Revelation had already taught, not the book of Revelation, but scriptural Revelation, what the what God had revealed was true for men and women's roles. He affirmed that in his actions and in his teachings that there's different roles that are to be embraced by men and women. 
then we also see that throughout the New Testament. So not only in our Old Testament do we see these principles, not only does Jesus promote these principles, but we see them throughout scripture as well, where women are spiritual equals with men in redemption. Gender wasn't taken into account. Jesus didn't die mostly for the men and women can come along for the ride. What a horrible thought. Nowhere is that displayed in scripture as if men were more important or more, more, more valuable to redeem or something along those lines. Men and women both have been saved by the grace of God, fellow heirs of the grace of life. In fact, there's specific instruction. We'll look at this passage a little bit more later, 1 Peter 3. There's specific instruction, which comes because it's likely men's thinking needs to be corrected, that they treat their wife as a fellow heir. And so if there's a temptation for a man in his spiritual role as a leader within his home to have some sort of arrogance or pride or think he's worth something more as, as um, God's gift to humanity, well, no, you, you need to serve your wife, care for her, love her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, as one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ as well. And yet, there's role differentiation that's put forth. Paul, under no less inspiration of the Holy Spirit than in the other verses that we see, defines different roles for men and women, both in the church and in the Christian home. And we see that through a number of different passages. And as we look at the different roles of men and women in a moment, we'll unpack some of these. But as sinful genders who've come to taste God's glory and understand God's grace and have been saved by the gospel through the cross of Christ, we actually see something beautiful put on display when we embrace the roles that God has given us. In fact, in Ephesians 5, we have this wonderful discourse of explanation of how a man and a woman in a marriage relationship embracing their biblical roles puts on display the beauty of Christ in the church and God's intention within within that institution. We don't tolerate, we don't believe in a patriarchal, outdated view of genders uh, because that's what tradition dictates. So we don't believe that the man is the head of the household. He's the king of his own domain. We don't hold to that, that he is the leader and the dictator and his wife and children are there to serve him and meet his every need. That's not how these role differentiations uh, function, which sometimes is kind of the preconceived notion. If you say a man has a role as the leader in the home and a woman has a role as a helper in the home, well, then you must mean that the women just have to do whatever the men say. And in that statement, you believe that the man is going to dictate or say or demand everything that he wants for his own interest. Listen, if you have a husband who is committed to God's design for biblical marriage, you're going to want to do what he says <laughs> because he's going to lead with your best interest in mind for the glory of God. Um, so th the thought of submitting to your husband or doing what he says is not an intimidating one. That's, well, what about what I want? What about, you know, and then you've got a man who's leading with all the things he wants and a woman who's following, but chafing against that leadership because of all the things he wants. And now you're in, you're not embracing the roles that God has given you. Even if you say he's leading and I'm following, you're not doing it in the manner that God has prescribed. And so what God, what has God prescribed? Well, that's what we're going to look at. So if you turn to your next page, you've got man's role in the home, and then you've got a big blank sheet. And uh, I'm going to give you some kind of uh, bullet points that you can fill in uh, as we go. There are, let's see, six of them, so you know how much room to allocate. Six of them for men. We're going to go through the man's role um, a little bit quicker, and then we'll spend a little more time on the women's role. But it's important to understand the man's role. When, when, I, when I met with the men on Thursday and we talked through this, we talked through the reality. Listen, if you're to sacrificially, if a man is to sacrificially Christ-like love and care for his home, he needs to understand what God has called his wife to be and to do so that he can serve her and lead her towards that in a Christ-like, humble manner. Um, and as women, if you're called to a specific role to be a helper and, and to support and care and respect and love your husband, you need to understand what God has called your husband to so that you can fulfill your role. So it's important to understand both, but we are going to go through the man's role a little bit quicker, and then we'll jump in to the women's role. So first, man 
um, is called to be a provider. And in 1 Timothy 5.8, we see this expressed. 1 Timothy 5.8, and it's that man is called to be a provider. Paul says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In this context, it is talking about financial provisions, that a man is to be a worker, he's to be diligent, he's to provide. This is a, a pretty subjective principle in the sense of what provision looks like, okay? It's not that he needs to provide so that you have a life that looks like the richest of the world, but a man is to work hard. He's to be faithful. He's to be diligent. He's to make sure that the basic needs of his household are met. This is important. A man should work. He shouldn't pawn off his obligation to work and say, listen, honey, you go make money and I'll, I'll work in the home. No, a man should be faithful to work. He should be faithful to provide. That's also not a prohibition against women working outside of the home necessarily. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. But the point here is that a man in his role is to provide for his household. Now, this verse specifically speaks of man as a provider as it pertains to financial resources. But a man as the leader of his household should be a provider beyond that. Uh, a man shouldn't be satisfied to say, hey, I work 60 hours a week. I bring in X amount of money. I've fulfilled my role because I've provided. Man is called to much more than that as well. So a man's role in the home starts with being a provider, both financially, certainly financially, but not exclusively financially. He's to provide for his home in just the aroma within the home, spiritual leadership, care, love, nurturing, encouragement. All of those things should be coming from a godly man in his home. A man is also called to show honor to his wife. What is his role? He's called to honor his wife. A man should honor his wife. We see that in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, and I, told, I referenced this verse earlier, said we'd come back to it. So a man is to show honor to his wife. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. There again, you see this reality. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life and he's to honor her, care for her so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is a significant point for the man to honor his wife, to, to serve her, to care for her, to live with her in an understanding way, to listen, listen, to, to understand somebody, you have to know them. So a man should show honor and care to his wife. Ephesians 5, men are called to love their wives. What's a role that they have that they cannot neglect? It's one of love. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives. And then just to clarify what he means by that, Paul says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This love is not just a, an emotional passion. It's not that a man should be passionate about his wife, although that's good. A man should be passionate about his wife. But this love, this is an unconditional, self-sacrificing, self-giving love that's personified, it's exemplified in Christ, and particularly how Christ gave himself up for the church is the example. A husband should be a self-sacrificing, self-giving, crucifying his own desires and passions for the sake of his wife. A husband is also called to provide leadership in the home, leadership in the home. So we had, he's a provider, he's to show honor, he's to love his wife, he's also to provide leadership in the home. We see that in Ephesians 5 also, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The husband is called here to be the head. That is to provide leadership, to provide direction spiritually. And yet that leadership and that headship is to be expressed as Christ's leadership and Christ's headship was expressed for the church as one who, what did he do? 
he went to the cross. So for a godly husband, there should be nothing that he seeks to demand from his wife for his own ambitions and good. He's actually, in his exercising of his headship, crucifying his own desires and his own passions for the sake of serving his family towards what is best, what honors the Lord. So this leadership, it should be driven out of a yielding to the Lord to honor Christ in the direction that he points his household. Men are also called to not be embittered towards their wife. Colossians 3.19 tells us, husband, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Do not be embittered against your wife. Men are to be compassionate. They're to be forgiving. They're to be unified and connected to. There's not room for resentment or bitterness in a husband's leadership or care for his home. And and that embitterment can corrupt a man's expression of his leadership very quickly, where no longer he's seeking after the interests of what's best for his wife, but he's seeking after his own interests because he's harbored bitterness towards his wife. He has expectations or desires or, or things that he wants his wife to do. And when he doesn't get that, he gets resentful and grows in embitterment. And there's actually direct instruction to not be embittered towards his wife. And then the husband is to be a leader of the children. He's to be a leader within the household, but he's also to lead in the spiritual care of the children. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And it's interesting, in this section, Paul is really spelling out familial relationships. So relationships within the family, relationships with the home, as well as slave-master relationships, uh, which oftentimes transpired within homes as well, for the believers in Christ and how they're to function. And he specifically calls out fathers here. And and it's interesting because in in chapter 6, verse 2, The instruction for children is to obey your parents, honor your father and mother. And so he's used father and mother in the preceding verse, and yet he specific, or preceding verses, and yet he specifically points to fathers in regards to the spiritual care and direction for the children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, husbands, dads are to be leaders in the spiritual care for the children in the home. That doesn't mean that they do everything, but one of the things I encourage the men is, listen, if, if you're home, take the lead in discipline and spiritual instruction. Um, and when you're not, y- you women, you should be taking the lead in your husband's absence in the spiritual care and discipline of your children. And yet, I think it's right and appropriate for a man when he is in the home to to take the lead in that. That's not a a command that a man should be the one that disciplines children when a husband and wife are there all the time or else you're sinning. But a a man should be bringing spiritual direction and, and input on the spiritual care and discipline of children within the home. Okay, uh, before we jump into women's roles in the home, any, any questions, comments on any of that so far? Colossians 318, 19, 319. Okay. Now, as we talk about women's roles, it's, it's very important this is God's design for men and women. And yet, uh, these are mutually exclusive. So what I mean by that is that a man is called to be what we just called, what we just looked at, regardless of if his wife is fulfilling what God has called her to be and do. And what God calls women to be in the home, she's obligated to before the Lord, regardless of if her husband is fulfilling all of the roles that God has designed him to be. Now, in a sin-laden world, there's all sorts of nuances and complications and effects of sin that can challenge this. The very fact that death is in the world uh, leads to single spouse homes. Um, Sin, divorce, different things like that can lead to homes not always being within the design that is God's ideal for the home. And we have to navigate those things intentionally and thoughtfully. And yet that doesn't change what God 
uh, has designed things to be or what his intention or what is good or, or best be for him. And regardless of where your husband is at in meeting his God-given uh, roles within the home, uh, there's hope for you to be what God calls you to be independent of your husband. And the best aid for your husband being what God has called him to be is for you to be what God has called you to be. And your best aid for you being what God has called you to be is for your husband to be what God has called him to be. But neither one is an excuse for, for getting you off the hook <laughs> or getting me off the hook. We both are called to be these things regardless. So as we work through uh, the women, I have um, four, four bullet points with an additional consideration after that. So just as you're, as you're making notes. And first, we already talked about it, but a, a woman is to be a helper, a helper for her husband. We saw that from Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18, that God said, it's not good for a man to be alone, but I will make a helper, a, a compliment, one to come alongside, one to benefit the man in that relationship. To, to whatever the man is called to be, the woman's participation in that is going to aid him in his being what God has called him to be. The minions are running around in the <laughs> attic again. Um, and so uh, how, how beautiful is that? That God has created where a man and a woman become one flesh, one family unit, one entity, one flesh, and they complement each other in such a way that their ability to glorify God is enhanced through their embracing God's design within the relationship. So a woman is called to be a helper, to come alongside, to aid, to assist the man in what he's called to be and do before the Lord. Women are also called to submit to their husbands, to submission. And, and this is one of the harder points in our day and our culture, understandably so because of the misuse of authority. And yet a woman is called to submission to her husband. We see that in Ephesians 5.22. And 5.24. Ephesians 5.24. In conjunction with this, we see that a woman is called to respect her husband, to esteem, or, or it's actually a, a word um, for fear. This isn't another point, but this is just under submission to her husband. So Ephesians 5.22, Ephesians 5.24, Ephesians 5.33. There's also an emphasis on respect in Ephesians 5.33. And that word for respect is actually a, um, similar to the word for fear, but not like a, not like women are called to be terrified of their husbands, but like a, 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 a reverential respect for, an esteem of. Colossians 3.18 calls women to submit to their husbands. Titus 2, 4, and 5. Colossians 3.18, Titus 2, 4, and 5. And 1 Peter 3.1. And this is important to think about the, the relationship within the Trinity. We even looked at this recently from Philippians 2, that Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He submitted to the Father's will. He was obedient to the Father to the point of death. And there's a, an authority submission relationship between the Father and the Son, where Jesus is actually, the night of his betrayal, pleading with the Father to remove this cup. If there's any other way, let it be, but not my will, yours be done. And the Son submits to the Father. And God uses this act of submission in the triune relationship of the Holy God to display wonderful things about the unity Within the, within the Trinity and to accomplish wonderful things in salvation for all who would believe. And so a husband is called to submit to her husband in the Lord, okay? And the, the, the question that's often asked is, is, well, what if he calls me to do something sinful? That's, that's where you submit to your husband in the Lord. If you don't, you don't obey your husband in doing what is sinful. But instead of being quick, 
to think, if that's you, instead of being quick to think, where's my out? Have the disposition, the Lord calls me to submit to my husband. I want to find every way to do this. And I only won't, only won't when it pushes the extremes of, of uh, going over the edge into sin. That that's the kind of disposition that we should have in our submission to Christ. That's the kind of disposition that we should have in uh, a woman's submission to her husband. She should be eager to want to embrace this call that God has for her to submit and come under the leadership of her husband. To submit. That doesn't mean you can't vocalize concerns or ask questions or interact, but you, it does mean that the heart behind which you do so is not with an eagerness to come out of your husband's authority, but with an eagerness to help him and to aid him. If, if he's making decisions alongside of you for your household and he's got opinions about a direction that he thinks would serve the family best and you're questioning that, don't ask questions trying to usurp his authority or trying to sway him or convince him or manipulate or something along those lines. Help him. I, honey, have you thought about this? Help me understand in light of these considerations. Seek to be one to his thought process, but also be honest and open about your concerns or your questions. Be a help to him and aid to him in those things. Women are also called to be a lover of their husbands and children. A lover of husbands or husband and children. So that's the third point. First, a helper. Second, women are called to submission to their husband. And then also women are called to be a lover of their husband and children. That's in Titus 2.4. And go ahead and turn there. We're going to spend a little bit in time in Titus 2.2. 2. Titus 2, 4, uh, actually start in verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love, the, love their husbands, to love their children. A, a woman is called to love her husband and love her children. Um, to be a worker in the home, to be diligent in that. And that's our, that's our next point, which is in conjunction with this. A woman is called to be a helper. She's called to submit to her husband. She's called to love her husband and her children. And she's called to be a worker in the home. But in being a lover of your husband and children, this is a command. So in, in fulfilling your role within the home, it's not that you're just called to be a helper and you're just called to submit but you can be distant from your husband, both relationally or emotionally, you're actually called to love him, to give of yourself for his good, to consider his needs above your own in the same way that a husband's called to love his wife in his leadership and all that goes with that, being patient and kind and not bragging or boastful or seeking his best interest or holding account of wrongdoings or being reluctant to forgive, a, a wife should be that with her husband as well. She should be patient and kind and gentle, not self-seeking, quick to forgive, giving of herself for her husband's good. And she's to be that for her children as well. Raising children is hard. Tempers get pushed to the limit. <laughs> it can be relentless. Uh, the needs of your child, they just, they don't go away. And it can be a temptation to become resentful. There's just no room for that. Women are called to love their children, to serve them, to be affectionate towards them. And then, as, as I already mentioned, to be a, a worker in the home. That's the last of the four that we have. And we see that in verse five of Titus two. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. There's the reference I... I um, made note of earlier as well for the subjection so that the word of God will not be dishonored in the same way that a man is to care and love his wife and show honor so that his prayers aren't hindered. A wife's embracing of her role is important for her spiritual well-being and the testimony of the word of God in that 
she's to embrace these roles so that the word of God will not be dishonored. A woman is called to be a worker in the home that is faithful, diligent, to, to care for the home, to care for the household. That doesn't mean that when dividing up tasks, everything that needs to be done in the home is the woman's responsibility and the man goes and provides. That's not, that's not what God's putting forth here. However, your home under the husband's leadership should be in order. You should be a diligent worker in the home. You should be faithful in the home. How does this relate to working outside of the home for a man and a woman? Well, a man should be a provider for the household. That doesn't prohibit women from working outside the home. But a woman should not neglect her responsibility to be faithful in the home to go work outside the home. So a woman has a permissibility to work outside the home as she is being faithful in her mandate to be a good worker in the home. Does that make sense? So you can't leave your responsibilities in the home to go work outside of the home. But as a woman is being faithful with the needs in the home, she has the freedom to work outside. Faithful worker in the home. Diligent in her care for the children, diligent in her care and help of her husband. And that's a conversation that's to be had by a husband and wife. Listen, capacities are different, needs are different, previous choices lead to different circumstances, different effects of circumstances lead to different situations. Not, not everything is always just cookie cutter, exactly the same in every home. Different families have different uh, number of children, different needs for their children, different preferences and how they educate their children or, or so forth. There's just a lot of variations uh, which lead to a lot of freedoms in how these principles are expressed. Yet the principles, principles remain the same and the roles are the same. A, a wife is to be faithfully working in the home. A husband is to be faithfully providing. And yet when a, when a husband steps into his home, he should be the chief servant in that home and seek to come alongside and aid his wife. And a wife should be eager when the husband comes in the home. She shouldn't throw up her hands and say, finally, my relief. I'll see you later. You're home. Keep the kids. I'm going to go do what I want to do. They're driving me crazy. Um, no, she should be eager to want to step into her husband's life and serve and be a blessing to him. And the husband should be eager to step into that home and seek to serve and be a blessing to her. Additional considerations. Uh, Proverbs 31, verse 10 through 31. And, and we won't go into that. I, I want to leave a little bit of time for some questions. But it's a wonderful passage putting forth a woman that's to be esteemed. Sorry, we actually see uh, the woman in Proverbs 31 uh, working faithfully, diligently in the home and, um, and being just a, a treasure of, of a wife to be prized and, and adored. And um, her conduct actually leads to a good reputation where she's even praised in the streets and in the marketplace because of her diligence before her husband. Now, uh, lastly, before we jump into questions, I just want to make one final observation from 1 Corinthians 11.3. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this. Paul says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. So you've got these three statements here. And in the middle of them is the relationship between the man and the woman. And this is in the context of Paul giving instruction about Christian order and how that's to be reflected through man and woman and their relationship and their interaction with one another. And yet it starts with, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Men are to look to Christ as their authority and their leadership. So for men to best see what spiritual leadership and authority looks like, to whom should they look? Christ. Okay, and then look at the last statement. God is the head of Christ. God is the authority over Christ. There's a, a authority subjection relationship within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. 
And we see this expressed in the, in the very realities of the gospel where, where Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Okay. So to whom should women look to see the clearest, best picture of submission? Christ. For a man to best know what sacrificial authority and leadership looks like in the home, he must look to Christ. This is discipline one. This is heart shepherding. For a woman to know what godly subjection looks like, what does godly submission look like? Look at the way Christ submits to the Father and embrace that. This is, again, goes back to the importance of heart shepherding. You will be best positioned, a man will be best positioned, a woman will be best positioned to embrace the roles that God has given them when they fix their eyes on Christ. So we need to shepherd our hearts to to know Christ, to love Christ, to be eager to fellowship with Christ uh, for the glory of God. Okay, that was a lot. What questions do you guys have? Yes, Tanya. Yeah, so without looking at a specific passage, it's hard to give a specific explanation. But in principle, we see um, there's a, a uniqueness in the nation of Israel being set apart to be holy and distinct from all of the other nations. And there's multiple warnings within, um, particularly the, the Pentateuch, for the dangers of foreign women to turn hearts away. And we see that repetitively among the kings, especially where foreign women came in and turned the man's heart away towards foreign gods. And so God's desire was for them not to intermarry. And yet knowing that that could happen, he did give prescription for how to function within that. And I think looking at some of those phrases, like if she displeases you, in what context is that talking about being displeased and what is the prescription there? In Malachi, we see really clearly God hates divorce. So it's not something where it's like, away from me, woman, you displeased me. You know, I, I think there's most likely more going on there when it has to do with the displeasure towards allegiance and faithfulness to Yahweh. Um, but I'd have to look at the specific passage to know for sure. And, um, and, and it's also a great picture of just how sin mars things. If God says, don't do this, but if you do, here's how to operate. You're actually operating under not the ideal. And so God wasn't saying don't intermarry because, you know, women are bad, but because he knew the propensity for foreign women and their foreign gods to turn the hearts away of men, which is a great picture, not necessarily of the value of man and woman, but for the importance of of equally yokedness, of like-mindedness, in the marriage relationship, especially when you're working with your kids, um, to, to be thinking about those things. And as far as the, the ill treatment of women, uh, I don't think the point there is that God d- demeans women or has less priority, but he was concerned, very concerned with the holiness of his people. And so where that was threatened, there was extreme precautions and measures to maintain the holiness of his people. And some of that corruption came also because God told them to wipe out completely different nations. They failed to do that. And he had to give further instruction in light of their disobedience. So it's one of those things where sin begets more sin and God gives instruction on how to navigate those things in light of that. If you want to send me specific passages where you're like, I still have questions about what's going on here. 
be happy to look at those. Yeah, that's a good question. What else? I woke up, I got all ready, I needed, I was, I was like, okay, they're gonna let me have it. I've gotta be prepared. You guys are too easy. Okay, well, if you have questions that you'd rather ask in private, you can do that. Uh, otherwise, you can split into your groups and you have about a little over 20 minutes.